After defeating Shah Muhammad and annexing what remained of the once great Khwarizmian Empire into his own, Temujin, the great Khan and the scourge of God, intended to return home to his beloved Mongolian steppes. After six years of fighting in the Middle East, he had been away for far too long from his homeland. However, this didn't mean that he was finished conquering. Far from it, actually. Before embarking home, he authorized a 20,000-man expedition led by his general Subadai that would go on to devastate Georgia, end the Golden Age of Ukraine, and strike at the heart of the Hungarian Empire, leaving all of Europe ripe for conquering. As he journeyed towards East Asia, he left orders to further deal death and destruction to his more ancient enemies. The war with the Jin was still ongoing, but progressing nicely. He personally dealt with the Tangrut, who had failed to send assistance against the Shaw when the Khan had requested it. The Khan had been so furious that he forced an aide to remind him of it twice a day. This hadn't been the only violation of the Khan's peace terms between the two peoples, but it would be the last. Temujin lay waste to them to the point of genocide. He wanted to do the same in Tibet, but was told that it would be too geographically difficult to reach the plateau. That conquest would have to wait for another time. The journey home was slow and deliberate, with numerous feasts and hunts to celebrate the triumphs. During one of these hunts, the Khan was thrown from his horse and suffered a great fall. He would never fully recover. After a prolonged struggle with symptoms attributed to internal injuries, the great Khan died on August 18, 1227. He was 65 years old and had become the world's greatest conqueror. He had forged an empire larger than the continent of North America, whether his empire could last would be a task for others. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Mongolia's most notorious conqueror, Genghis Khan. Episode number five, The Legacy of the Khan. There are numerous stories surrounding the death of the Khan. Some are rather mundane, such as the Khan dying of the bubonic plague, but others are significantly more dramatized. For instance, there's the story of a female Tangrut patriot who strategically placed glass within her body so that the Khan was castrated after penetrating her during an assault. According to this story, the Khan bleeds to death. Although many theories exist, British historian Frank McLinn, whose book Genghis Khan is a definitive account of the Khan's life, is among those who fully accept the rather bland and boring internal injuries explanation for the Khan's death. He even reveals that severe falls and the resulting internal injuries are known to trigger carcinoma, 
and the deathbed scenes in the sources suggest a death by cancer. At 65 years old, Temujin had greatly exceeded his own individual life expectancy. Unlike most great conquerors of the world, he was an entirely self-made man. After the death of his father, his family wore clothes made out of the skins of rats, who were also a main food source during that period of his life. There are dozens of moments where a slight change could have rewritten history, such as the time a viper-laced arrow sliced open his neck. The average life expectancy for a Mongol during this era was 50 years, largely due to high rates of alcoholism. The Mongols had always attached their manhood to how much they could drink. Alcoholism wasn't a huge problem before they left the steppes, as their locally brewed fermented alcohol had low alcohol content. As their empire expanded, however, they came in contact with significantly more powerful forms of alcohol, including wine with far higher alcohol ratios. The Mongols embraced these new drinks without adjusting for the higher alcohol content, and drinking copious amounts remained the manly thing to do. Temujin lived much of his life in excess, particularly regarding his women. However, he managed to maintain his prior life habits in the field of drink and housing. As a moderate drinker, the Khan outlived most of his peers and even a few of his sons. Supporting the slow death by internal injuries theories, the Khan summoned a Kuratai and put the empire's affairs in order. However, one ghastly piece of business had to occur beforehand, involving his firstborn child, Jochi. The name Jochi means guest in the Mongolian native tongue. It was openly discussed that Jochi, who didn't resemble his father, was sired by another man while his mother Borte had been held captive. However, Temujin always treated him as his own, typically ranking him ahead of his brothers in any hierarchical task. Shagatai, the secondborn, never accepted Jochi, his half-brother as a family member despite sharing the same mother. This wasn't a secret to the Khan, who valued information above all else. Earlier in life, Temujin summoned all of his children to impart a crucial lesson. He took a single arrow and snapped it in two, empathizing the fate of an individual standing alone. Then he took a bundle of arrows and attempted with all his might to break them illustrating that family members sticking together were unbreakable. The sum was always greater than the parts. However, during the campaign against the Shah, his attempt to forge unity between Jochi and Shagatai backfired, leading to public bickering and even physical confrontations. While Shagatai is often blamed for this failure, Jochi had his faults as well he deviated from the Mongol script of surrender or face obliteration, and withheld loot during the conquest. On the return journey home, he distanced himself from his father, visibly upset about his place in the family. 
it became evident that Jochi had removed his arrow from the family quiver. His problem was resolved in late 1226 or early 1227 when envoys reported Jochi's sudden and unknown illness. McLinn suggests, almost casually, that Genghis sent an assassination squad to his son's camp. Although envoys returned with news of Jochi's authentic illness, McLinn implies that the leader of the steppe people had ordered his son's murder, a startling revelation that echoes his earlier decision to murder his half-brother Begtar, the catalyst for uniting the Mongol nation. The death of Jochi would ensure its unity even after Genghis Khan's demise. If McLinn's account is true, it provides a seamless segue into a discussion on morality. There are two primary schools of thought on the subject, deontology and utilitarianism. Few of the Khan's actions, especially this one, align with deontology, which attempts to judge actions on their own merits excluding secondary effects from the equation. Even if the Khan hadn't biologically fathered Jochi, he accepted him as his son and personally raised him alongside Jochi's mother, Borte. With an empire as vast as the Khan's, one can easily imagine there might have been some distant conquester land where he could have exiled Jochi to live out his life in luxury. Killing a family member, particularly a son, contradicts the steppe people's beliefs about honor. For incidents like this, few historians attempt to apply a deontological lens to the Khan. Utilitarianism is often the lens through which moral discussions about the Khan unfold. Niccolo Machiavelli provides the clearest justification for this philosophy in his work, The Prince. Machiavelli asserts that it is the leader's duty to take actions that result in positive benefits for his or her people. The ends justify the means is one of Machiavelli's lines that has always stood out. Faced with his own mortality, Genghis sought to create a kingdom that would last. If Jochi had lived, he would have been the natural heir and successor to the Khan likely triggering an immediate civil war between him and Shagatai. The Khan knew this, and therefore he couldn't appoint Jochi as his successor. His firstborn's death removed the single greatest threat to the stability of the empire. Thus, in regards to his removal, the ends would have justified the means. With Jochi out of the way, the Khan convened all the major power players for his last Kuratai. He made four major decisions at this meeting. First, he divided up his kingdom among his remaining sons. Ogadai would receive the traditional Mongol lands in the Altai region and northern Siberia. Tolu would receive much of northern China. Shagatai would rule portions of Afghanistan and Iran taken from the Shah and Jochi's son's inheritance would extend west from the Aral Sea as far as the hooves of Mongol horses can take him. The boon to Jochi's family, perhaps driven by the Khan's own guilt, amounted to the richest land and represented the potential for the largest kingdom. 
each family received 4,000 families to rule the lands. An attempt by Genghis to force his descendants to build something of their own and earn their inheritance. Like all fathers, he wanted them to prove themselves worthy. The second order of business, however, was to name his official successor. Although the kingdoms were being split into smaller parcels, Temujin fully expected his family to remain united. Instead of his eldest surviving son Shagatai taking over, the Khan named Ogadai as his successor. This was a logical decision, as Shagatai had shown himself to be stern and ruthlessly unbending. Ogadai, on the other hand, was more of a politician than a conqueror, displaying significantly more empathy than his brothers. At this moment, he was both a reluctant leader and skeptical that any of it could last without their father. To his credit, Shagatai not only accepted his father's decree, but openly supported Ogadai throughout his reign, proving that his problem was purely with Jochi, rather than his own place in the pecking order. Third, Temujin gave his generals instructions for the final conquest of the Jin Empire. The war had been ongoing for 20 years, and the Khan wanted to ensure that his enemies would quickly join him in the afterlife. Fourth and finally, he gave gruesome orders for what would befall the Tangrut royal family. He first wanted to give them an honorific title before having them subsequently killed. This wasn't a selfless act, as the Mongols believed that complimenting your enemy would increase your own power in the afterlife. Furthermore, they believed that doing so would result in their spirit switching from enemy to protector. Whether or not that happened is unknown, but what is known is that the Khan had the royal family chopped to pieces on a spit. Our focus here is on Genghis Khan, so I won't linger too long on what happened post-August 18, 1227, but it's worth mentioning what befell Temujin's kingdom. Ogadai was largely successful in following his father's rule. He maintained and expanded many of the Khan's policies, including the strict enforcement of the Yasa and the expansion of the Yam messenger system. Like all younger generations, his rule advanced the Mongol Empire by moving it forward. Genghis had come to understand the value of a written language, but had never personally embraced it. His sons, however, had grown up with elite tutors and dedicated time for studies. Ogadai improved the literacy rates of his people and divided up administrative rule into a professionalized bureaucracy. Taxation and loans became methods they used to expand both their power and influence over their lands. Where he differed the most was in the creation of Karkorum. Established in 1235, this was the only city on the Mongolian steppe. Craftsmen from their conquered lands, as well as Ogadai's 4,000 families, were encouraged to build permanent settlements at the location surrounded by earthen walls with four gates leading into the city. He even had a castle built for himself, along with a series of lakes and individual houses of worship for the world's religions. 
You can imagine that Temujin rolled over a few times in his grave at the thought of his son and successor living behind the walls of the city. This decision effectively explains what happened to the Mongolian Empire and its people. In all four Khanats, which had at one point made up Genghis Khan's empire, the steppe warriors gradually adapted to the local populace. Within a few generations, Jochi's heirs had all become devout Muslims, whose lives were indistinct from those they ruled. Kublai Khan, the grandnephew of the Khan, came to rule the Yan dynasty of China, an empire that the Chinese widely regard as their greatest. When Marco Polo ran messages for the Khan, he wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between the Mongols and the people of China. The steppe had granted Temujin's people a superpower that they used to destroy their enemies. In the end, however, they forgot the source of their powers and became who they had defeated. Some of them even ended up as farmers. Ogadai had built a city in Mongolia, but cities are not meant to remain on the steppe. To ensure trade goods arriving at his capital, he ordered that there should be no haggling with any and all merchants. Whatever price the merchants deemed their goods worth would be paid, plus a mandatory tip. Absent such a policy, merchants would have long sold off their goods at any number of stops along the Silk Road. Their wagons empty, they would then restock in China, which were the goods that Europeans sought, and then return along the same path. The invisible hand would have ensured that none would have continued through the harsh climates to Karkorum. By allowing the seller to set the price, Ogadai made it worthwhile for merchants to hold on to their goods, knowing that they always had a guaranteed market at the end of the trip. This, along with the excess in which Ogadai lived, gradually bankrupted the Mongol Empire. That empire had been built on loot, and in comparison, Karkorum's domestic tax policies were rather mundane. Each herder had to give up one out of every hundred sheep to the emperor. Seeing his state coffers decline, as well as personally witnessing the loss of morale among his once proud warrior people, Ogadai authorized a number of wars. Beyond finishing off the Jin Chinese, the Mongols under him conquered Georgia and Armenia, Korea, Central Europe, as well as starting conflicts with the Song Dynasty of Southern China and India. As they had been under his father, these wars were brutal. And Ogadai, like his father, is responsible for horrific war crimes. The one that stands out the most occurred in 1237. Temujin's Yasa had forbade the seizure, rape, kidnapping, bartering, or selling of young girls until they reached the age of 16. The Orat people angered Ogadai Khan by refusing to send women as tribute to serve in his harem. According to Persian chroniclers, Ogadai, in a rage, seized 4,000 Orat girls, many of whom were as young as seven years old, stripped them, and allowed them to be sexually assaulted by his soldiers. All of this occurred in front of the girls' relatives. Those that survived the encounter were then trafficked into the sex industry across the empire. 
Ogadai's death marked the true end of Genghis Khan's empire. At its fullest point, the Pax Mongolica, or Mongol peace, included at its fringe portions of Austria, Finland, Croatia, Hungary, Poland, Vietnam, Burma, Japan, and Indonesia. McLinn puts it all in context by writing that it stretched from the Persian Gulf to the Arctic Ocean. Mongol influence extended as far as Mali in Africa. The Mongol Empire covered 12 million contiguous square miles, an area as large as Africa and bigger than North America. By contrast, the extent of the Roman Empire was about half that of continental USA. By 1240, Mongol conquests covered most of the known world. At the time of Genghis's death in 1227, it managed to envelop more than half of what was known. The modern population of the countries ruled by the empire at its greatest extent contains three of the world's seven billion people. The death of Ogadai, and consequently the Pax Mongolica, came in 1241. Ogadai, like many Mongols, was an alcoholic. It was such a problem that his elder brother Shagatai placed an official in charge of watching how much the Khan consumed. Like many alcoholics, the Khan didn't really believe that he had a problem. He gave promises to reduce the number of cups he drank each day, but circumvented them by artificially enlarging the size of the kingdom's cups. He died on December 11, 1241, after a long night of drinking. His unexpected death at the age of 55 likely saved Europe. Subadai had just defeated the armies of the Hungarian Empire, which left Europe wide open to conquest. Not a single military force capable of stopping the general stood between his forces and the Atlantic Ocean. However, the death of Ogadai necessitated a curatai in order to cement succession. Subadai, as their greatest general, was forced to end his conquest prematurely and return for the proceedings. The Europeans were so stunned at the arrival and subsequent disappearance of the Mongols that they never actually figured anything out about them. Chroniclers referred to them incorrectly as the Tatars, the group that Genghis had massacred in retaliation for the death of his father. The Christian church referred to their arrival as the first sign that the apocalypse was upon them. For decades, they awaited the Mongol horde's return, but it never came. Subadai had invaded Europe upon promises of riches, but in comparison to what had been taken from the Chinese, the Muslim kingdoms of the Middle East, and the Russian princes, Europe was dirt poor and didn't offer anything that the Mongols wanted. Europe recovered quickly without being subjected to the continued horrors of the Khan's empire and was eventually able to pretend that Subadai's invasion, with a mere 20,000 men, had just been a bad dream. Without Ogadai, the empire became decentralized, and each Khanat went their own separate way. The 
the legacy of the Khan becomes more complicated every year that we get farther removed from the atrocities that they committed. McLinn represents a traditionalist viewpoint of these events, stating that the history of Genghis Khan and the Mongols can sometimes seem no more than an endless recital of massacres with pyramids of skulls. It is always important to remember that each individual that perished was an individual, a person with loved ones and the potential to do something amazing with their life. By best estimates, the Khan's order snuffed out 40 million lives. Each invasion resulted in catastrophic declines in the local population, particularly in northern China and the Middle East. The final tally puts him alongside the modern-day faces of evil. Adolf Hitler's actions are estimated by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum to have caused 17 million deaths of non-combatants. Joseph Stalin, whose largest purges were of his own people, is believed to have killed 20 million according to internal Soviet sources. Mao Zedong topped both, including the effects of his disastrous economic policies. Historians believe that he takes the cake at being responsible for up to 42 and a half million deaths. Keep in mind, however, that the world's population was significantly smaller during the 13th century. It is believed that Genghis Khan managed to kill around 8% of the world's entire population. This total is so absurd that researchers in Antarctica believe that they have definitive proof that global warming was momentarily reversed during this time period. Humans breathe out carbon dioxide, while plants breathe it in and hold it. Not all plants are created equal, however, as trees and uncut grasses hold on to their carbon intake significantly longer than farmland, which is prematurely cut down for harvest. The Mongols affected the global system of climate by first removing a significant number of carbon breathers from the equation. According to the scientists, 700 million fewer tons of carbon were admitted during this time period. That is enough to offset an entire year of carbon emitted from gasoline usage today. Adding to the effect, the Mongols destroyed cities that weren't useful to trade and obliterated towns so that they could be returned to pasture. That would have locked in carbon capture to enhance the effect of what amounted to the Khan's unintentional carbon mitigation strategies. There are some who want to extrapolate these death totals further, essentially allowing them to lay all of the world's problems at the feet of the 13th century Temujin. Some historians like to claim that Genghis exported his brand of brutality to the Middle East, corrupting Islam into a force of violence. Those who believe this claim point out that this violent form of Islam spread to northern Africa, which crossed the Mediterranean via the conquest of Spain by the Moors. They then claim that the Christians were forced to raise their own levels of violence to remove them via the Spanish Reconquista. By this logic, Genghis Khan was responsible for the Spanish Inquisition, as well as Christopher Columbus's violence against the native populations of the Americas. For me, this is a bridge too far, as such a simplistic viewpoint of history ignores the earlier violent societies of the Assyrians, the Huns, the Spartans, 
and the Romans. Genghis Khan didn't invent violence, he just performed it better than most. There were times that it went too far. At that last Kuratai, with him aware that he would not live to see the order carried out, he sentenced every living Tangrut soul to death. His men faithfully carried out those orders. Likewise, he was exceptionally cruel to the Tatars and went significantly further than he had to during the conquest of the Middle East, justifying his dishonorable acts by claiming his opponents did not deserve honor. Another crime that blackens the legacy of the Khan regards his treatment of women. No one's quite sure how large a personal harem he maintained, nor how many of those women were truly accepting of their fate. Forced marriages as well as mass sexual assault events, which he personally witnessed and authorized, have to guarantee the Khan a special place in hell, no matter which religion is correct. He held seven official wives, and although Borte was the most influential, she wasn't regarded as one of his favorites, particularly during the last few decades of their lives together. Among his wives were significantly younger women, as well as a pair of sisters. The Khan produced dozens of legitimate and illegitimate children, and those children went on to live their lives in a similar manner to their father. Temujin reportedly said the greatest joy for a man is to defeat his enemies, to drive them before him, to take from them all they possess, to see those they love in tears, to ride their horses, and to hold their wives and daughters in his arms. Although McLean puts it at just 0.5%, a 2003 study claims that one out of every 200 men share a Y chromosome that was derived from Genghis Khan and his descendants. This makes Genghis Khan the closest thing to an atom that the world can identify. The pillaging, rape, and wanton destruction of civilization are hallmarks of the Mongol Empire and will forever place them on the evil side of the ledger. However, the further we are removed from the atrocities, history tends to forget the tragedies, and instead attempts to turn over the coin to see the other side. This is where revisionist historians such as Jack Weatherford come in. I've always thought that the term revisionist carries an unfair negative connotation. The act of revisionism is to re-examine established facts from a different perspective. Time is a massive factor in how events are examined and perceived. As an American residing today in Minnesota, Dr. Weatherford likely isn't related to anyone who was affected by the conquests of Genghis Khan during the 13th century. To him, the deaths are mere statistics rather than potential family ancestors. The contemporary Muslim scholars of the day were incapable of seeing this barbarian king as anything else than a murderer as they personally witnessed the fear that unfolded interviewing refugees fleeing for their lives. Genghis did not hide from these accusations. He had fully embraced and run with the title of the Scourge of God. Time also allows you to see how events unfold over the long term, and that can change how things are measured.
today, history appears to be reclaiming Genghis Khan's legacy, one that has been purposefully long buried. Fearful of awakening the spirit of the steppe people, the Soviets, and then the Chinese Communist Party have outlawed celebrations of the Khan, going so far as making postage stamps with his likeness on it illegal. Today, the Khan of Khans is being positively credited with uniting the world via cultural diffusion. He was ethnically, racially, and religiously tolerant, spreading the benefits of meritocracy to each land that he arrived at. After the initial slaughter, each of the kingdoms that he conquered went on to flourish, particularly due to increased trade. The Khan rebuilt portions of the Silk Road and diligently protected it with his forces. It was said during this time that merchants could travel the entire distance of the Silk Road with a gold plate balanced on their head, without any fear of robbery or assault. Military techniques, particularly Chinese siege craft and gunpowder, were introduced to the Middle East and Europe. Gunpowder kingdoms quickly popped up along these trade routes and extended the influence of the Khan. The technology was impossible for any one civilization to create, as it required elements from each civilization that was united beneath the Khan. This included Chinese engineers and their gunpowder, Muslim flamethrowers, and European bell-casting technology. The three cultures combined to invent the cannon. Under the Khan, craftsmen thrived due to the support they were given like the Medici family sparking the Renaissance through their generous funding of artists, the Khan would regularly spare those who could produce things. They were given everything that they then needed to thrive in their new life. Everything, that is, except for their freedom. He even invented a passport system to verify travelers along the Yam communication system. The Khan's cultural bridge-building is the central thesis of Weatherford's work. In the book Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, he writes that the Mongols made no technological breakthroughs, founded no religions, wrote few books or dramas, and gave the world no new crops or methods of agriculture. Their craftsmen could not weave cloth, cast metal, or make pottery, or even bake bread. They manufactured neither porcelain nor pottery, painted no pictures, and built no buildings. Yet, as their army conquered culture after culture, they collected and passed all of these skills from one civilization to the next. The only permanent structures Genghis Khan erected were bridges. Although he spurned the building of castles, forts, cities, or walls as he moved across the landscape, he probably built more bridges than any ruler in history. He spanned hundreds of streams and rivers in order to make the movement of his armies and goods quicker. The Mongols deliberately opened the world to new commerce, not only in goods, but also in ideas and knowledge. The Mongols brought German miners to China and Chinese doctors to Persia. The transfers ranged from the monumental to the trivial. They spread the use of carpets everywhere they went, and transplanted lemons and carrots from Persia to China, as well as noodles, playing cards, and tea from China to the West. They brought a metal worker from Paris to build a foundation on the dry steppes of Mongolia, recruited an English nobleman to serve as an interpreter in their army, 
and took the practice of Chinese fingerprinting to Persia. They financed the building of Christian churches in China, Buddhist temples and stupas in Persia, and Muslim Quranic schools in Russia. The Mongols swept across the globe as conquerors, but also as civilizations unrivaled cultural carriers. Marco Polo's travels to China via the Silk Road served as the inspiration for Europeans to explore the world. One of their tasks was to specifically seek out routes to the imperial courts of the Great Khans. For his voyage across the Atlantic Ocean, Christopher Columbus only brought with him one book, Marco Polo's The Travels. Just as Columbus receives credit for the seismic effects that occurred in the wake of the Columbian Exchange, the Mongolians connected the world via trade. Historian Ma Debin goes so far as to describe the Silk Road as the original melting pot, the lifeline of the Eurasian continent. Temujin also improved the lives of his people. Prior to Genghis Khan, any description of the steppe would have to include the word anarchy, due to multiple overlapping and century-old blood feuds. They went from a society on the fringes, regularly manipulated by the Jin Chinese, to one that imposed their will and ways upon others. The great Khan united the tribes, importing both literacy and wealth to the steppe. Although it never should have existed, the fact that an actual city was built in their traditional homeland tells us more about the legacy of the Khan than any other fact. The secret history, the only historical source in the Mongols' own voice, could have never existed in the world that Temujin had been born into. His Yasa, or Code of Laws, is as significant of an achievement as Hammurabi's Code, Justinian's Civil Codex and the Napoleonic Code. Last but not least in the eyes of the Khan, Genghis revolutionized modern fighting tactics. Towards the end of his life, the Mongols were conducting joint assaults, combining cavalry, siegecraft, and amphibious marine assaults. Their introduction and incorporation of gunpowder permanently changed the face of warfare. Encirclement tactics, mobility, and concentrating firepower on the masses were all concepts that Napoleon would study and incorporate into his own strategies. In nearly every single engagement, the Mongols were outnumbered. Their tendency to penetrate deep into enemy territory meant that they were continually in danger of being cut off and surrounded without reinforcements. Yet no enemy ever succeeded in managing to do so. The Europeans, who would begin to dominate world affairs a mere 200 years after their own encounter with the Mongols, believed that the steppe horsemen had thrown all of their forces against them, when in reality it had been a mere scouting force that had decimated their greatest kingdoms. The Mongols crossed the Gobi Desert, defeated and demolished hundreds of civilization's walled cities, and successfully invaded Russia during the winter. Barbarians had managed to bring civilization to its knees. The Khan's legacy, therefore, is complex, to say the least.
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.